Welcome to Tuning In, the podcast of the Handel and Haydn Society, recorded in Boston, Massachusetts. H&H is the nation's longest-running arts organization, founded in 1815, and since the 1980s has been a leader in the performance on period instruments of music from the Renaissance through the 19th century. In each episode of our podcast, we explore music and artistry and the way both weave us through society and life in general, within the early music field and outside of it. We highlight music featured during the society's past and that planned for its future. I'm your host, Guy Fishman. The Handel and Haydn Society is fortunate to have a diverse group of singers and instrumentalists lend their talents to our performances. All are experts in various areas of the early music field. These podcast episodes are meant to give the listener a glimpse into the artistic process of bringing the music to life and indeed insight into the music itself. But I also hope to introduce some of our musicians to you in ways that you may not have access to when coming to see us perform. So many of us have interesting stories to share and noteworthy lives beyond H&H that inform our commitment when we come together as H&H. It's a pleasure to have violinist Fiona Hughes on this episode. Fiona studied at the Cleveland Institute of Music and Oberlin Conservatory and has performed with groups along the East Coast, including Boston Baroque, Apollo's Fire, and the Washington Consort. She is a tenured member of Handel and Haydn's violin section. Fiona, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to jump right into it. Few people, if any, begin studying the violin on a period instrument, right? Mostly it's mm -hmm. a standard instrument or a modern instrument. When did you start playing the violin? Why? And when did you take up the Baroque violin? Great question. So I was seven years old and I heard Bach being played on the violin. It was actually the Bach, uh, the famous double concerto in D minor for, you know, for two violins. And it was being played on modern violins. But I heard that piece and I apparently came home and insisted to my mother that I wanted to play that instrument. I would I would brook no resistance, right? And so they just got me signed up for violin lessons. And I already played piano, so I had that sort of foundation. Let's say I was never a great practicer, but my mom really got me got me to practice, uh, bless her. So I'm very grateful to her now in hindsight for all those times when I didn't want to practice. She made me practice. And then basically, I have to say, even though I'd heard a lot of early music recordings, I had not heard a Baroque violin, which is to say I never heard gut strings mm -hmm. until I saw a Baroque violin being played live in Cleveland, Ohio, while I was in music school at Cleveland Institute. I'll never forget, I walked into Harkness Chapel there um, at Case Western University. And I, like, I had my back to the stage and I heard this unearthly beautiful sound. I was like, what is that? Like, that's a violin. That's some... And I turned around and there it was, you know, this, this gut-strung instrument with the, the Baroque bow turned, you know, it's like, it's like, what is that thing? I want that. And from that moment, I'll never forget, it was just like, that's what I want to do because suddenly the instrument, the sound of the instrument, it just made sense mm -hmm. with early music, which I'd already been drawn to. 
as I studied the violin. Wow. So you turned to the dark side all the way in college. Took that long <laughs> yeah, to get there. Right. Can you believe it? I know. Because, I mean, there are some people like my friend Ann Timberlake, fabulous recorder player. Like She grew up being surrounded by early music people because she grew up in Bloomington, where Indiana University is. She thought it was totally normal to play an early instrument and, and to specialize in one from the get-go. She, I think she was 11 when she took up recorder. And she and I laugh about that from time to time. Like, you know, I was very much the, like, right down the middle of the road, um, modern violin approach and I had a wonderful time at Cleveland Institute and I learned a lot about chamber music there in particular but yeah the early music thing was definitely down a side road it looked like but I it's sure been a good one so how did you find that change going from a modern instrument to a period instrument you know there were the the phases of trying to hold the broke violin without the modern appendages of the chin rest and shoulder rest and you know standing over the mattress to make sure if I drop the instrument it's not going to break so that, that was this were my, my early memories like how do I hold this thing and not fall off but basically I have found the whole approach of historical performance practice to be one of real depth in in terms of understanding the context of the music so it, it definitely informs my modern violin playing as well. And when I pick up my modern violin to play with the Richmond Symphony, for instance, I really have a broader and sort of like a deeper sense of the context of the music and the way that the composers influenced each other. I guess those of us, when we study historical performance, we really are being historians in a sense where our instruments themselves are part of the musical understanding. Whereas the modern approach, in some cases, it tends to move towards you're just interpreting it subjectively by yourself on your own, however you feel is how you play it. Whereas with historical deference, you might say, you might say, okay, I'm going to actually figure out what this composer would have been influenced by and what the thought was about, you know, what is the right minuet tempo? Well, it turns out there is one, you know, mm. and they, they certainly do influence each other. Interesting. So you took up not just a physical instrument, but also began to develop these ideas about the differences in approach while you were still studying mm -hmm. modern violin, right, at yes. Cleveland. Did you encounter support or resistance? Right. Mm. You know, I, I didn't really have resistance. I mean, I definitely had some quizzical, you know, questions <laughs> like, what, why are you doing that? But in general, I think by the time I was in school, people were a little more aware of the early music movement and um, Apollo's Fire had become a very respected institution in the Cleveland area. And that certainly was like, oh, okay, this is this is a legitimate path you can take. And, and my teachers were very supportive of it, oh. I would say. I'm glad to hear that. So you still yeah. play the modern violin. Yeah. You alluded to the influence of the Baroque violin on your modern playing and likely vice versa. Can you specifically go into a few areas where one influences the other? Well, one thing that I've thought about a bit just because it's actually come up sometimes in the Handel and Hein Society, this idea of, well, we have a lot of modern approaches now, even when we're doing early music, historically informed performance, we should be aware that we are being influenced by modern practices, one of which is, of course, having a conductor, right? Mm -hmm. And and the the more historically accurate thing is to just have the concertmaster leading. And this is sort of, sort of an interesting debate, right? But one thing I would say is I just love this modern development of 
someone up there waving their arms, showing what the music should sound like, right? This is why I love H&H so much. And I've worked there for 10 years without even living nearby is, is working with Harry Christopher's in particular and all these wonderful guests, you know, conductors that, that come in because that is such an inspiring thing to me because I'm a very visual person as well. So it's so helpful and inspiring to have someone who's showing in this way, which again, it's just the development that we now have in, that they didn't have back in you know 1700 as much, where the conductor is not playing an instrument, therefore he or she is completely free to show just the musical ideas and inspire us all. And so that's been kind of fun to see, yeah, this is a modern development and we can bring it into our historical performance. That's just my sort of personal opinion about that. Like, no, it's not historically accurate. And yes, it's wonderful. The conductor slash music director as we know them today is a mid-19th century invention, basically. Mm -hmm, There were timekeepers, mm -hmm. but what you said is so clear and correct that this is someone who's not playing an instrument. Someone needs to lead the show. And traditionally, that would have been a concert master. That's why they're called concert mm-hmm. master on the violin mm-hmm. or maybe a harpsichordist. Oftentimes, the composer, him or herself, would take that duty on. But we don't expect to see the conductor. In fact, I played a concert once where the conductor took up a violin and this was a Pops concert. So he played Devil Went Down to Georgia and mm. uh, we played it and he decided he was going to play the violin part. And the audience was shocked to see the conductor take up an instrument and play quite well, actually. Mm. <laughs> the roles are so distinct today, uh, whereas At the time when most of the music that we play was composed, roles were mixed. You know, the composer was Mm -hmm. often the conductor, often the performer, and uh, oftentimes they played multiple instruments. And sometimes it's hard to know what instrument the work was composed for because this guy played violin and oboe, and who knows? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I love your perspective on the beauty of having a director. There are historical inaccuracies, but we accept them because there's so much to be gained from it. Yeah. If it's a good conductor. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) So you have been a member of H&H for 10 years. I am proud to say I sat Mm -hmm. on your audition. One of the things that perhaps before listening to this episode, folks may not have known about you is that while you're up on stage with us, with many Bostonians. You don't live in Boston. In fact, you're one of our farthest traveled <laughs> yeah. members. Uh, where do you live? Uh, so I live in Central Virginia, actually. For those who, who may know about the Stanton Music Festival. So Stanton is a small town and it's, it's a sort of hidden gem here in Virginia. A lot of beautiful musical acoustics available to musicians in this town and Stanton Music Festival happens every summer sadly of course it has been postponed this year but I live right here I can walk downtown and it's just a wonderful place I'm, I'm from Virginia originally mm. and when I graduated from Oberlin my teacher Marilyn McDonald suggested that I audition for the Handel and Haydn Society. And I was like, the what? You know, the what society? Uh, I never heard of it. And now I look back and I think, man, I didn't know anything. You know, <laughs> I had no idea what was out there. <laughs> it's just been, it's been wonderful. And it's been absolutely worth all of the traveling. I don't really enjoy traveling, but I do a lot of it. And it's totally worth it for the artistic inspiration of working with H&H. Well, so... That's my next question. What <laughs> what has life been like for the last 10 years, especially as someone who self-professed not a lover of travel? Mm. 
it's a lot of travel you have to do. I mean, you were with us, if not for every concert, then the mm-hmm. wide majority of them. And we get to enjoy your playing often. So what um, what has that been like for you? Well, you know, I have to say my hosts up there in the Boston area have been consistently my home away from home. And they're just so generous. And that makes it feel like I can make this work. You know, having a sense of expectation, like I know where I'm going to stay. And I'm able to be at home and have a somewhat normalcy there compared to what a lot of people who travel, you know, living from hotel room to hotel room, that would be dreadful. But it has worked for me because H&H has such a consistent and sort of predictable schedule. I'm like almost every month there's something or every other month. I've just got to where I I hit the ground in Boston and I'm there and I know exactly what I'm doing and I know where I'm getting my groceries and I I know how to use the public transportation system and all these things. I mean, I grew up in in the country, like uh, I'm pretty much from a more rural background and, and Boston was just this incredibly overwhelming city when I first got there. Um, I got lost my very first day getting to the first rehearsal, you know, 10 and a half years ago. And now I, I feel like it's my backyard. You know, it's a great city. I, I usually stay in the North Cambridge area and I've gotten really used to that as well. But it certainly has been an interesting life, you know, to be traveling as much as I do. If it makes you feel any better, I was half an hour late to my first rehearsal <laughs> as well. I I took... <laughs> Route 95, the wrong direction, and basically went all the way around Boston to get up to Melrose, where we were rehearsing, and thought I was certainly going to get fired. Uh, Everybody was very worried, but had a good laugh. (laughs) Good laugh over it. But it's a familiar experience. I think longtime Bostonians are still getting lost (laughs) in the city. (laughs) We do love it. So it's clear that there are things to love about this place, keeps you coming back and obviously things about where you live that you value and love because you you mm-hmm. keep living there so it's fantastic uh, varied mm-hmm. life uh, for me H&H feels like my home orchestra right because it's the single busiest ensemble in which I play but also because I live here in Boston so I'd like to get a little deep I hope you don't mind yeah was there a time before you felt like you belonged, mm. partly because you weren't living here? Was was there any transition period mm. at the end of which you felt, okay, I'm here, I belong as much as everyone else? Or was it straight from the beginning, you're just, you're here? No, that's a, that's a good question. You know, having a sense of place and knowing a place well, knowing a people well and understanding a community, that's all... A process, right? So, no, I felt very out of place for maybe the first four or five years that I was working with H and H, and then, you know, gradually I start to learn. Ah, this is this is what Boston is, and this is what the audiences are like. And you know, someone, some audience member will see me with my violin on the subway, and they'll strike up a conversation, want to ask me about the composers and what it was like to play such and such, you know, and tell me what they think. And it's just great. I really appreciate that almost a small town feel about the community there. And I've learned to kind of make myself more available to talk to people you know, go to events outside of rehearsals and things. I'm, I'm an introvert, right? So so I've never been the sort to just immediately like open out and get to know everybody and feel comfortable in any given place. But yeah, you know, there's something real special about the Handel and Hind Society being such a 
an established institution. I talk to people who know about early music in general, who have a favorite specific composer, and they might mention, like if they if they love Haydn, they've never heard of Handel and the Haydn Society, but they'll say, oh, I love the Haydn creation, the one that Harry Christopher conducts. And I mean, you want you mean the one with Handel and Haydn? He's, oh, that's the one. Yeah, that's right. You know, and so, I mean, this is like a, a conversation I had in California a year ago. And I was just like, whoa, we have a reputation, right? Like a really good reputation. That's like, this, this is our, my favorite recording of all time. Uh, someone who really is an expert and knows a lot about, about Haydn. And, and it was just kind of cool to, to realize how far reaching it is. And yet at the same time, how much of a small town community feel it can be. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's called a society. And I feel like the audiences, the board, the administration, and the musicians take real ownership of it. And we, we mm. kind of are a society. I am grateful for the things you're saying about H&H, but I want to veer slightly aside from it and mm -hmm. talk about one of the other things our listeners may not know about you, which is that in addition to your work at H&H, &H, you not only perform with other ensembles, which is something most of us do as well, but you are artistic director of an ensemble in Virginia, Three Notched Road. I'm not sure how many early music ensembles with full seasons are active in Virginia, mm -hmm. but in light research, it certainly seems you are a premier among them. Did you found this group and what brought about its founding? Oh, yeah. Thanks. Three Notched Road. We were founded back in 2011. This is our 10th season starting this fall. And basically, yeah, I was one of the founders and Timberlake, the recorder player I mentioned earlier, and David McCormick, another broke violinist. The three of us got together and said, let's get something going here in central Virginia. There's not enough going on in the field of early music. We perform the full length of Three Notched Road. And for those of you not from Virginia, um, old Three Notched Road ran from Richmond, through Charlottesville to Stanton. But sometimes you see an old sign that says Old Three Notch Road. Basically, Highway 250 now covers what used to be the road. And they would mark it back in the, like, I think the 17th century, they would mark the road by chopping three notches in the tree. So that's mm. where the name comes from, right? Very, very historic place, similar to Boston, lots of history here, and a lot of interest in, in early music. I think compared to Boston, there's not as many early music groups. So when we go to a school and we play these early instruments for the kids, we can be basically 100% sure they have never seen or heard anything like this. You know, they see the theorbo, the, the lute with the long neck. They're like, what is that? That is so cool, right? <laughs> it's been really, really great here. We, we do outreach concerts to schools, but we also have a full season of four concerts a year that we present in all three cities. And... You know, it's a, a smaller ensemble than H&H. &H. The no maximum number of musicians we've ever had on stage is 12. And most of our concerts, it's like five, maybe seven musicians. And we do a lot of vocal music as well as instrumental programs. Wow. So that's 12 concerts, right? Three cities, yeah. four programs. Mm -hmm. That's significant. What goes into artistic directing a group such as this? And do you also have to tackle some of the administrative work that's associated with a successful ensemble oh yeah yeah for sure there's i mean basically there are two staff members is me and then dominic giardino 
who's the operations manager. We do pretty much everything. If we need help from volunteers, we we send out a notice. And we have some wonderful board members who are very much involved in the workings, and we have a volunteer grant coordinator. And it's small, but we were able to make it work. And and I do some of the administrative work as well, and that's been really healthy. I think. If I could do it again, I would have taken some of those classes on how nonprofit organizations work. I would have done that way back in college. I had no idea how important that would be, right? But I've learned as I've as I've gone. I've learned from making mistakes, and you know, yeah. And then you you pick up and and get back on the horse, right? I I generally program all of the concerts. That's the main work of of being artistic director is you know choosing the music and then guiding the rehearsal process. Mm-hmm. I have a whole list of guest artists who come and perform, some of whom are familiar names with Handel and Haydn as well. But, you know, the early music field is far flung. We have brought people in from Seattle, from Chicago, from all over the country. And it's just been wonderful to bring fresh faces and and fresh talents to Virginia. One of the things that I do occasionally have to explain if somebody says, well, so-and-so was playing cello last time and now we've got this other person and I'll point out, well, this is actually a gamba, you know, it's a different instrument. Like, you know, you can't, you can't hire the same person, especially not necessarily, sometimes you can, but, um, but we do have such variety in programming because we're pretty much the only thing around. Right. And we, we do medieval music, we do Renaissance, we do early American stuff. And we had American gore banjo on our concerts. Right. So we got to bring in these people who specialize in these, unusual instruments. And so that's one of the easy explanations for why we have so many uh, fresh faces from from season to season. And then we do have our core. So among these repertoires that you've just mentioned, is there anything that you feel is like your home repertoire, the, the things you specialize in, audiences have come to expect? <laughs> if, if the audience comes to expect anything of my programming, it's that it's going to be really broad. You know, I, I don't stick with the same hmm. country or the same century in within the same program. Like, and so, I mean, sometimes I do, you know, I'll do a program that's like it's all Bieber or it's all Bach. But that's kind of the exception. I do programs where there's more of a text-based connection. So, you know, a Christmas program, say, where you have early Polish lullabies and then the text is really similar to an early American piece that is nevertheless, you know, two or three centuries later than the Polish piece. And I put them side by side. And and yet the text shows the connection. So I'm really focused more on, you might say, the poetry aspect of programming. And it's amazing how well these musicians, they make this work. Someone coming at it from a musicological perspective would say, well, this is absolute chaos, you know. And and I have occasionally, really, oh, I got to rein myself in a little bit here, you know. But it's a really fun process. And, and I think that our audiences appreciate the diversity so that they can take their favorite pieces and go learn more about it. And just really focus on introducing people to music they've never heard before. Mm. I love that. And I, I also love the fact that you've had banjo <laughs> on your programming. And I, I know very, very little about this. And perhaps I should not say anything, but I will. Uh, Do it. Traditional American violin playing in the part of the country where you are from mm. is actually quite similar to what we do as as period instrumentalists it's, it's sort of a violin playing that was untouched by time the yeah. way that someone studying early french would go to quebec and listen to the way they speak french as a sort of a gateway to mm. 
uh, it's a time capsule of how yes. uh, French was spoken. The same with violin playing. You can go to places in Canada, uh, some places in Europe, Scotland, and the broader Appalachia where that violin playing is is it's not gone through conservatory, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. really the way, and, and neither did Baroque violinists that we admire. They had a teacher mm-hmm. maybe, but you know, real conservatories in 1700. And I, I find that intoxicating. And again, like I said, I've not been exposed to it a lot, but the idea that there exists an authentic approach to violin playing mm-hmm. that kind of reflects that ideal we're all striving towards. And it's right there uh, is very exciting. You're welcome to steal this as a program idea, if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Does your work at H&H impact your work with your own group and maybe the other way around mm. as well, despite the different nature of the repertoire and the presentation that you experience at both? Right. Yeah, we don't have anything like Symphony Hall or even Jordan Hall down here. So we perform in churches. There's some really beautiful acoustic spaces here. And that's about the right size for our smaller audiences and smaller ensembles. If I could sum up how H&H influences my work as artistic director, I just strive to be the kind of inspiring leader for my ensemble that Harry Christopher's and Aislinn Noski are with H&H, you know, in their their various roles. And all the different guest leaders and and guest soloists that we have that come to work with us, I just feel like I'm getting musical ideas and and intelligence and most recent research in various ways. I'm able to access that through the members of the Handel and Hyde Society. And so that really, it just helps. It feels like continuing education, right? Yeah. It gives me something of a different perspective, I think. Just a real sense of respect for everyone in the administration. They do so much work, and yet they don't get the applause. We get the applause, right? And of course, we do a ton of work too. But sometimes I want to like bring them out on stage and make sure that the audience understands how much has to go on behind the scenes. Mm, I love that point. Yeah. And it's so important, and I'm grateful that you've made it. The numbers of people that work yeah. to put every performance mm. on is astounding. The, the level of commitment and the work that they do. But I have to say that where your group is concerned, I really admire the creation of something from nothing right which is what you do when you found a group and creating work not just for yourself but for your colleagues and your friends that's very very admirable how is three notched road facing the uncertainty of the current situation so yeah basically we you know we're going to do some recording projects and pick up whatever live performances we can do and we have certainly some live performances scheduled in the future and we just <laughs> haven't determined exactly what it will be. So yeah, it's just sort of TBD, right? It sounds like uncertainty, but hope and surety that you're going to pull through. You're in a position to predict success for Three Notch Road. And I'm really glad yes. that that's the case. Well, and one thing I can add to that that I thought of is I really appreciate H&H's commitment to live performance. There really is no substitute. Mm. And, you know, for all that we're grateful for what the digital and virtual kind of performing opportunities give us, at the same time, there's really no substitute. And because H&H has made that statement, you know, to us all, I can also say thank you, because that is also my perspective from an artistic point of view. And I'm just the point of view of a musician, the acoustic of the room, of the space that we're in, is part of the musical product. Well, Fiona, 
It's great to hear you talk a bit about the rich life that you lead. I'm thrilled that you're one of us here at H&H and wish you continued success with your own ensemble. Hopefully we'll be able to hear and enjoy your performing here in Boston sometime soon. I hope so. And I thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Guy. I really appreciate your doing this podcast. My pleasure. Fiona Hughes is a member of Handel and Haydn's violin section and artistic director of Three Notched Road, the Virginia Baroque Ensemble. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit our webpage at handelandhaydn.org slash podcast for past episodes and supplemental materials to this one, including biographical information and a link to the website of Three Notched Road, directed by Fiona, where you can purchase their CDs and browse their season. I hope you'll join me for our next episode.